Well, I hope you're doing well. It's, it's become somewhat customary when I get up to speak that I give you the update, the latest on the Johnson's house renovations. Um, would you like to see the latest? Uh, yeah? So I've uh, got a photo up here. This is Zachary's bedroom that I've currently worked on. Um, obviously, we're very proud of all that we've achieved there so far. It's all about the detail, really. Uh, but that's where I'm coming from. I know that some of you are looking at that, that picture and thinking, oh my goodness, Paul, what are you doing? It looks like the Johnsons have been hit by a drone strike or something like that. Uh, but don't worry, I have a master plan. I've assured Emma that all the work will be completed by Christmas. <laughs> I'm just not willing to specify which Christmas at this stage. I'm not going to be drawn into that level of detail. Um, so it's going it's to be all right. Probably Christmas 2019, I think, darling. Okay, so that's where, that's where we're up to. But if you think about it, it's not just photos of the Johnson household uh, that's distressing. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on out in the wider world that um, we can be uh, really wary of, really. So um, th- we live in unsettling times. Uh, it seems like daily we're realizing the impact of the Brexit that will affect all of us. There's financial uncertainty. There are threats to jobs for many of us. The impact of the government's setbacks in the areas of health and education are really starting to bite. And we're facing what I would say is the most controversial American presidential election in living memory that will in turn have ripple effect here in the UK. And when faced with all of these different uncertainties, for many of us, the response, myself included, can be somewhat to withdraw perhaps to hunker down, to think to to ourselves, if I can just get by through this next season, everything will be all right. If I can perhaps just hang on until Christmas, if I can maybe make next month's rent payment, if I could just get the kids into a good school, if I can just hit the target this month, if I can just pay off the mortgage, if I can only make it through to retirement, then everything will be all right. To think to ourselves, if I can just weather out this storm, it'll all be okay if I can just survive until this next point. When in fact, God's plan for us is so much bigger and so much more influential. He promises us life and life in all its abundance in John 10.10. Not just for us personally, for everyone around us. And that's why this morning we're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. Uh, We've entitled the series Exiles and ambassadors, because we want to understand more fully how Daniel lived for the kingdom of God in circumstances that really were very far from ideal. How did he go beyond just getting by in his situation? We want to look at how he conducted himself, how he grew in influence, and how ultimately he shaped the destiny of a whole nation. So why don't you turn to the person next to you, got it up on the screen, and say this to them, you're not meant just to survive, you were made to experience life in all its abundance. Why don't you turn to the person next to you, encourage them with that truth. All right, have you got hold of that? Are you ready? All right, great. Well, unsurprisingly, the story of Daniel is found in the book of Daniel, which is very convenient. And let me just give you a run-up to the passage. Uh, Let me give you the story so far, if you like. Uh, God chooses this somewhat insignificant group of nomads, known as the Israelites, to demonstrate his grace to the wider world. Uh, He gives them the land of Cana, uh, which is in the bottom corner of an area known as the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East. 
It's called the Fertile Crescent because it's fertile and it's in the shape of a crescent. Stop me if you can't keep up, all right? So, and what would happen is during those times, people would travel backwards and forwards across the Fertile Crescent. That's, that's how they would travel. And uh, they tend to avoid other areas that are more arid, like the Arabian Desert, so they wouldn't go there because it's a harsh, dry climate. And also, as you can see from the map, it was inhabited by a giant camel, and you didn't want to get attacked by that. So Cana, where they live, is a great place to live. It's got lots of natural resources, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and there's a Starbucks on every corner. So all is good and well, except that the Fertile Crescent also attracts the superpowers of the day, because it's a good place to base an empire. Places like Egypt and Assyria, people like that. And all things being equal, this tiny nation of ex-nomads should really have been squashed like a bug by the vast superpowers of the day. But God loves the underdog. So if you feel like an underdog this morning, you're just the kind of person that God wants to protect and support. And so all is well, except that the Israelites repeatedly choose to be unfaithful to the God who loves and protects them. They go after other gods, which had terrible practices, things like shrine prostitution, and even the, the sacrifice of children. And God sends prophets time and again to warn the people, to say to them, look, stop this behavior, return to me. So that's what all the books of the prophecy in the Old Testament are about. But by and large, the people ignore God's instructions, and they turn away from him. And then finally, in order to bring people back to a place of repentance, God lifts his hand of protection over the people of Israel. No sooner has he done that, than these, these superpowers start to sweep in and take over Israel. Unfortunately, they all arrive in order. So the superpowers come one after the other. They arrive in alphabetical order to make it easier for us to remember. So we have the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, followed by Cyrus the Persian. Okay, I may have cheated a little bit there, but it'll help you remember, okay? So we have these superpowers sweeping in. Today, in today's passage, we're going to be looking at the period of the Babylonians. So it's roughly around 605 BC, probably on a Wednesday when these events happen, okay? So that's where we're at in Daniel chapter 1. Let me read the passage to you so you can get the gist of the story, all right? The king, that's the king of Babylon, orders Asphanaz, his chief of staff, to bring the palace, to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who have been brought to Babylon as captives. He says this, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. He said, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, kind of like a degree, and then they would enter royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. That's in Israel. The chief of staff renamed them with the following Babylonian names, which are quite difficult to pronounce. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. He re but he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded, which is going to be a problem. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed 
by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel says, how about this? Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, and then make your decision in the light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude, which is gifting, for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted with them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Okay, great. Quite a long passage, but I hope you get the feel of what's going on here. Let's try to understand a little bit of the circumstances. King Nebuchadnezzar, he rules this massive empire called Babylon, and he wants to solidify his rules. He wants to make sure that he's not going to have any problems, particularly with the outskirts, the far reaches of his empire that would take a long time to travel to. So one of the ways that he solidifies his rule is he basically does a brain drain from all the outlying regions and nations. So he takes into Babylon anyone that's from royal blood or highly educated or from the nobility in order that he might have them under his close supervision. So that's why he's doing that. It's a means of solidifying and protecting his rule. So he brings out this command and he sends it to his officials for those that have been brought into Babylon. He says, basically, I want to get the best of the best. Those that you brought in, I want a certain number that I can then influence and shape. He commands his officials like this, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment. So he's saying, just select the best of the best. Now, I'm aware that some of us here this morning, we're visual learners. Uh, So what I want to do to help you to be able to picture this is I've managed to get hold of an artist's impression of what these strong, healthy, and good-looking young men may have looked like. Uh, You'll see them up here on the screen, though, so that's... That's them. I'm, I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's helping you. Um, some of you here will recognize that that is actually a photo of Communion J, the, um, the, the leadership boy band with Damien filling in for Simon that performed at the youth fundraising event. Um, some of you actually have asked as well if there will ever be a Communion J comeback, perhaps a tour, something like that. The answer is a most definite no. Uh, two reasons for that is, um, one, our hairstylist quit. She said there wasn't enough hair to style. (laughs) And secondly, after our first performance, this is true, isn't it, Steve? Uh, A number of individuals offered to pay us large sums of money if we promised never to perform in public again. (laughs) So we we took the cash, but never mind. But at least it gives you an idea of what these young men would have looked like. So think for a moment. These young men, they've left their homeland in Jerusalem. They've been forcibly repatriated into Babylon. And they've been now put in a situation where the king wants to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture and practices. Think about what it's like for Daniel for a moment. He's just a teenage lad, probably 
just the same age as many of the young people in riot or innovation in this church. And he's been marched 1,500 miles to this place called Babylon. It was a strange environment. He's separated from his family, everything that he knew. The culture is different. The language is different. The food is different. The practices are different. Everything is suddenly changed. He's effectively a prisoner in a strange land. It could so easily have robbed him of all faith and confidence, couldn't it? He could so easily have felt just the victim of external circumstances, perhaps a crushed and broken man. Maybe you can identify with what it is to have to operate in very unhelpful circumstances. Uh, Perhaps it's not as severe as this environment, but maybe for you the challenge is in the workplace, where it's a dog-eat-dog kind of environment. You have to meet your monthly targets or else. Or perhaps you're, you're involved in education and you're being asked to do more and more each year with less and less time and resources. Or maybe the culture where you study or work is extremely hostile. You know, it's okay to have another faith or even no faith at all, but it's not okay to say that you're a follower of Jesus. That invites all kinds of trouble. Or perhaps for you it's not the work environment, maybe for you it's just your domestic situation. Where if you're honest, you hear about other people's home environments, perhaps their marriages, and you know that your life is a million miles away from what they experience. Maybe your spouse started out accepting your faith, but now has very much changed his or her tune, and things have turned against you, and it's a daily, consistent struggle. Yet somehow, Daniel manages to thrive even in the worst of circumstances. He manages to rise above all of that. He's not just a victim, in fact, far from it. Somehow, he manages not just to get by, but to thrive where God's placed him. And he changes the culture around him. Somehow, like the Apostle Paul puts it, Daniel manages to live like an ambassador in a hostile world. He lives like a man with dignity and purpose. You see that in his actions. It's almost like he's not being captured to then live in Babylon, but he lives like he's been sent to live in Babylon. And it's the world of difference. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of war. Not a bit of it. He sees himself as an agent on a mission. How does he manage that? Can you see that if we begin to understand that, then it will help so many of us in the difficult environments we find ourselves in. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be unpacking that a little bit more because I think it's increasingly relevant uh, for our times. But for today, I just want to give us an initial few handholds, if you like, a few little insights in terms of how Daniel was able to live as an ambassador in this strange place. So three little things just to throw out for you. The, The first one this morning is this, is that the thing about ambassadors like Daniel is that they manage to rise above the circumstances they find themselves in. The ambassadors for the kingdom of God aren't defined by their environment. As we've heard Phil quote Chris Vallotton, who said this, ultimately it's our stances, not our circumstances, that define us. It's the attitude, it's the mindset that ultimately defines us, not our our circumstances immediately around us. Uh, You may not have heard of who this guy is coming up on the screen. His name is Viktor Frankl. For those of you who haven't heard of him, uh, he was a... Jewish doctor and psychiatrist living in Austria back at the outbreak of World War II. 
He managed to evade the Nazis for the first part of the war, but finally on October the 19th, 1944, he and his wife were captured and taken to the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp. As you can imagine, he suffered terribly uh, whilst he was there. To begin with, what would happen is when the guards would do something awful, awful to him, like they would hose him down with cold water or turn the light out for hours at a time in his cell, he would react to the way they treated him. There would be a stimulus on him, something would happen, and then he would bounce back with a reaction. But in the end, he realized that the guards could take away virtually everything from him. They separated him from, from his wife. They took away his freedom. They even took away his clothes. They could take everything from him except how he chose to respond to their treatment. He, he said this, that, that things would happen, there would be a stimulus, and in between his response and that stimulus, there lay this little middle ground where he got to make a choice. They could do anything they wanted except shape how he chose to respond. So he decided in that moment that he would respond in the opposite spirit to, what they were to the way they were treating him. So every time they treated him harshly, he would respond with forgiveness and grace. He spoke kindly to them no matter what they did. He demonstrated concern for them. He asked after their families and their well-being. He treated them with respect every time they disrespected him. And guess what? Little by little, the tough Nazi guards began to open up to Viktor Frankl. They began to pour out their hearts to him and ask for his advice. Viktor Frankl ultimately didn't conform to the prison. He conformed the prison to him. He refused to be a prisoner of his circumstances. It's the same with Daniel. Everything is taken from him. You know, his family, his country, his language, and his freedom. Even their names were taken from them. Most of us know his friends as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we, from Sunday school. Or as one kid referred to them, Toolshack, Hatrack, and Bendy Dingo. We know them as like that. Except that wasn't their original names. Their Hebrew names, like Hananiah and Mishael, mean things like Yahweh is gracious and who is like God. So those names that referred to Yahweh are taken away from them, and instead they were given names that referred to Babylonian gods. The Babylonians took everything from Daniel, his name, his family, his freedom. They could take everything except they couldn't take his identity. He always remembered who he was. You see, knowing who you are tells you how to live. My worst behavior comes when I forget who I am. That's when I react in anger or fear or lash out or get grumpy or pessimistic, when I forget actually who I am. Whenever I remember my identity, my behavior follows in due course. And Daniel chooses to live as an ambassador and not a slave. Ephesians tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in you and I. That means we get to choose how we live regardless of the circumstances. And if Daniel and Viktor Frankl can do it in a prison situation, well, we can certainly do it in a secondary school or an office or even the walls of our own home. I know, I know someone who went to a really tough uh, boarding school and uh, 
When the teachers weren't around, this all-boys boarding school was a very hard place to be. It was literally survival of the fittest. Um, the bullying and the intimidation were really, really quite severe as these broken young men took it out on other young men. And uh, this guy remembers one time where um, he was in the TV room, uh, which is where people would gather just to watch the TV together and relax. And there was a pecking order to it. And the way it would work is that the older boys, the bigger boys, would have the front rows with the best views of the screen, and the younger boys were put somewhere further back. And uh, one time he, he watched as one of the older boys on the front row was about to sneeze. And instead of catching his sneeze in his hand, he turned around and deliberately sneezed full on in the face of this young little lad behind him. That kind of summed up the environment of the school that he was in. There were beatings and there were humiliations. Boys would be locked in cupboards for hours. Circumstances couldn't have been more hostile. And then one, one day, this young lad goes to a Christian meeting and makes a commitment to follow Jesus. The easiest thing in the world would then to have become a slave to those circumstances he found himself in. He started telling people that he was a follower of Jesus. And then these boys were, acted like sharks where they sensed blood in the water and they circled on this boy. They made his life really, really difficult. The ridicule and the bullying was merciless. The worst place of all was probably the prep room, which is where they would go for two hours every evening and they'd pretty much be shut in to do their homework ready for the next day. But that meant two hours without adult supervision. And you can imagine how that went. His response, this brand new Christian lad, the first chance he got when he was on break, he went to the Christian bookstore at a local church and he bought a lapel pin that had a little cross on it with a dove on the cross that he pinned to the lapel of his blazer. Perhaps not the trendiest thing that a young man can wear in an all-boys school. But for him, it was his way, as it were, of nailing his colours to the mast. Of him saying to the world at large, this is who I am, and I refuse to back down from that place. As you can imagine, it caused all kinds of grief. But at the same time, it served as a constant reminder to him of who he really was. He was an ambassador from a different kingdom. Let me ask you, are you just trying to get by to survive day to day, month to month? Or are you living to make a difference? You were born for more than just survival. You were born for more than just getting by. It's time for us to live as ambassadors, not as slaves. And that will have all kinds of implications for each one of us. But at we're called to be like ambassadors like Daniel that rise above the circumstances we find ourselves in. That's the first thing. I want us to realize we're to step above that situation. The second thing is this. second thing about ambassadors of this kingdom is that they make steps of radical obedience. They demonstrate radical obedience no matter what. Daniel refused to com refuses to compromise his integrity. And if you remember from the passage, he rejects the food and the fine wine that was on offer to him and instead goes for a diet of just vegetables. Personally, I find that a very radical step to take. Now, I'm aware that when we come to the subject of food, in this room, particularly at the King's Arms, there's a, a wide variety of perspectives, okay? I 
I would be better off talking about politics. I would be on safer ground if I discussed those kinds of things. Because we have a whole spectrum of different approaches to food. On the one end of the spectrum, we have a bunch of people who are very conscious about what they put in their mouths, who are, who are perhaps on a vegetarian or vegan diet or restrictive diet of some kind. Um, if, they, if they eat a carrot, they want to make sure that it's been killed humanely and it's been free-range all of its life. You know, they're, just, they're up that end of the spectrum and they, they have smoothies that look like diced up compost. You know, they eat that, that's, that's where they're at, Okay. But there is a, there's another end of the spectrum. Up this end of the spectrum, to be honest, we have the South Africans, who are basically carnivorous as far as I'm concerned. I've yet to meet a South African vegetarian, all right? So they're up that end of the spectrum. Apparently, I don't know if it's true or not, but at a South African barbecue, a braai, the vegetarian option is chicken. I understand that's the... I believe that's the case, because it's kind of like a salad, isn't it, you know? So that's how I'm saying. So I'm on dodgy ground here. But the thing I want us to realize, before we make too much out of Daniel's diet, is to say that theologians are somewhat divided on why he chooses the vegetarian diet. It could have been for health reasons. So it could have been the way the meat was stored and prepared. So it could have been that, that he thinks, no, I need to make a stand on this. It could have been because they were being offered pork to eat, and therefore he couldn't, under Jewish restrictions, he couldn't eat pork. So it could, have, it could have been that. Or perhaps most likely, the theologians think, it was because the food that was being, being given to them had been involved in pagan sacrifices. So these gods of Babylon. And, and David, Daniel wanted to make a stand on the basis, I'm not going to receive this food because I'm not going to follow your God. And that's probably the most likely answer. But whatever the reason... I want us to realize that Daniel chooses to make a stand for integrity. That's what's going on here. He takes a massive step of faith. He doesn't just buck against everything. So he doesn't buck against the education they want to give him or even the fact they changed his name. But here, on the issue of food, he decides to take a radical stand. There was the possibility it might really backfire on him. But once... He realizes that that begins to characterize his position as an ambassador. It's a radical trust in God. The Apostle Paul says that you and I, the righteous, are meant to live by faith. There needs to be an element of trust. Otherwise, it's not really faith at all. It forces us to review what's really important, where, where we really put our reliance. That's why I love gift days like this today. Because it's one of those opportunities where it forces us to hit the pause button and ask ourselves, who am I really trusting in for provision? Am I trusting in my salary or my savings or am I trusting in my God? Malachi 3.10 has been a constant provocation and encouragement to me. It says this, it says, give God your first 10% and he will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test, God says in Malachi 3.10. God's saying, give your first 10% to me and I will pour out blessing on you. I figure if they could do that in the Old Testament, before they understood about Jesus, how much more so can we live like that, giving God our first 10% now that we understand the goodness of God revealed in Jesus? So personally... Right for my first paycheck, I decided to give God the first 10% and then do other offerings on top of that. And all these years later, I wouldn't change a thing. That's the way I've always lived. 
I remember one time before I got married as a single man, um, I was doing my uh, standing order to the church as normal, but there was this conference and this thing I really wanted to give in to. And uh, the worship was going on, so I wrote out a check. And uh, I stood up and carried on worshipping, and immediately the Holy Spirit said to me, that's not enough. So then I sat down and I wrote out a second check, and I tore up the first check. And I stood up to worship again, and the Holy Spirit said to me, it's still not enough. This happened four times during the worship. By the end of it, I was surrounded by little bits of paper, and I put the fifth check into the offering. It was everything I had for the holiday I was about to take. I was about to go on a camping trip with some friends. It was everything I had, and I put it in the offering. But the sense of lightness and freedom that came over me was remarkable. A couple of days later, one of the guys I'm going to go on the trip with comes up to me, and he said, PJ, you'll never guess what. We don't, we don't need to go camping anymore. We've just been offered a six-bedroom luxury house in Derbyshire for the week that we've got booked to go away on holiday. God provided everything way and above what I needed for that holiday. It's also proof positive that God hates camping. So that's just, just so you know. It's just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. that. Yeah, I, I feel an amen from you all there. I wouldn't pretend it's always been easy. Uh, when Ems and I first got married, we decided we are going to keep giving the first uh, 10%. And that's costly, particularly in the first two months of marriage when we had some bills, uh, house deposit to pay for, and bills from the wedding. Uh, so much so that we, we gave that first 10%, but it didn't look like the maths added up after that. So what we did is we found some presents that had come to us from Marks and Spencers. We took those presents back to Marks and Spencers, traded them in for vouchers, and then use the vouchers to buy food to tide us through those first two months. Radical, maybe, you might think. Crazy, you might think. Well, it's not quite as virtuous as you might imagine. Some of those presents were really tacky. So, but <laughs> the point was, the point was that, I hope none of you are here. Um, the point was that 10% was a done deal. That was concreted in and then let everything else come around it. 20 years on, fast forward. Emma and I are still giving our 10% plus other offerings. And we have seen Malachi 3.10 happen in our lives. We've seen the floodgates of heaven open. Last week, we, we put in a, a chunk of money in, into the offering here. Uh, two days later, so on the Tuesday, we receive seven checks that come through with the airline we flew with in the summer. Our flight had been delayed, and so they refunded more than the cost of our flights. So on, we give the check-in on, on the Sunday. On the Tuesday, we receive four times the amount we have just given. God has provided once again abundantly. That's what he's like. I could tell you story after story of God's amazing provision. See, the thing is, the way I see it is this. I can't, there are some areas in life where I can't just live crazy radical. I can't just up sticks and go and run an orphanage in Africa tomorrow. I've got various commitments. I can't do that. But in the area of finance, well, there I can live a radical life in 21st century Bedford. I can join in on this big adventure to see if God is as good as his word. And after 20 years, I can say he's proven himself through my finances. The question just becomes, what kind of life do you want to lead? Do you want to lead a life that depends on your salary and your savings? Or do you want to lead a life that depends on your God? You know, at the end of the day... I'm not going to know how much you're going to give. We're going to come down the front and put some stuff in the baskets. For all I know, you might be putting in a sheet of paper that's got your grandmother's apple crumble recipe on it. There might not be any money there. To be honest, I actually would be quite interested in that, but never mind. I don't know what you're going to give. Only a handful of the people on the finance team know. 
But what I'm saying to you is, what kind of life do you want to lead? Do you want to lead a radical adventure of faith? Or do you want to just hunker down and get by? Where's God calling you to take a step of faith at the moment? Where's he calling you just to trust a little bit more? Is it in the workplace, making a stand for integrity? Is it in your finances, starting to give him your first 10% and see what happens? Is it perhaps letting go of a dating relationship that's not doing you any good? Or is it simply to tell a friend that you're a follower of Jesus? What's he asking you to do? So that's the second thing. Ambassadors for Jesus live radical lives. We're pretty much out of time, but let me finish with this final third thing. When we live like ambassadors, when we rise above the circumstances, when we live with radical obedience, there will be a result. Things will happen. It doesn't matter if it's a hostile workplace or a demoralizing domestic situation or a tough school environment. When we live like ambassadors of heaven, we bring the reality of that place into the here and now. Let me just finish. You you remember I I told you about the guy in the boarding school? Well, that wasn't the end of the story. He um, takes his exams and he finishes at the school he was at. And to be honest, he was relieved uh, to have left such a tough environment and he moves on. But four years later, he bumps into one of the guys from his prep room. And he was a bit nervous about encountering this guy who'd given him so much grief in the past. Except when he comes across this guy, the man's demeanor, the young man's demeanor, is just completely different. Instead of hostility, he runs up to him and throws his arms around him, which sort of takes him aback. And this other guy says to him, I'm so pleased that I get to bump into you. You you, you may not believe this, but I've since become a Christian too. Not only that, but do you remember that other guy who used to sit in the corner of the prep room there? Well, he went on a Christian youth weekend away, and he became a Christian too. And you remember the other guy who used to sit opposite us? Well, he went to university and started going along to a Christian union because he met some great Christians at university, and he's now become a Christian too. Four out of the people from his prep room had now become Christians. There were four of them. This young man says to his friend, thank you so much what you modeled to us all those days in that prep room. That shy but courageous young lad, he hadn't done anything particularly upfront. He certainly hadn't preached at anyone. But amongst those broken and desperate boys, he quietly lived a life of patience and integrity. He was generous and he was kind. But above all, he was consistently loving. He demonstrated compassion every time someone chose to ridicule him. And as such, he represented a completely different set of values. A different kingdom, if you like, altogether. He knew he didn't just have to try and be everyone's saviour, because Jesus had already done that. All he needed to do was be an ambassador and represent the place that he comes from. And in each case, those other young men went to youth camps or universities where they found other ambassadors and suddenly realized, hang on, maybe there's something in this. At the end of the day, it wasn't the quality of his arguments or ideas that persuaded those young lads. It was the quality of his life that spoke most to them. You and I are not just victims of circumstances. We've been placed here on a mission. 
You're an ambassador of an eternal kingdom. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in you on a Monday morning. It's time for us to start living that way, to live lives of radical obedience and radical expectation to see what God might do amongst us in this region and in the nations beyond. Why don't we stand and pray together?